Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. Today's Bible reading is from John chapter 3, verse 16 to 21, and then we're skipping over to John chapter 7, verse 53 to 811. Uh, If you've got one of the church Bibles from out the front in the foyer, we're starting on page 862. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And over to chapter 7 verse 53. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the, law of Mo- in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Good morning. Uh, There's a couple of good passages there, so we're going to get into that, but let's pray first and then we'll look at these. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can gather together today. Thank you, Lord, that your word is life. Thank you, Lord, that the good news of the Bible is life to us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear what you're saying, that you would challenge us and change us. And we pray that we'd walk out different people than the ones who walked in today because we've encountered the living God. We pray this in, his, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So have you ever had that feeling that you're not good enough? Have you ever had that feeling that you're just simply not good enough? For me, I've uh, felt that a few times. Uh, and one of the clearest moments that I remember was actually here at church. Uh, see, if you have only come in the last kind of six months, you would know that here at Southside, this church hasn't always looked this good. In fact, pretty much for the last five years, we have been in a construction site. Uh, it's taken a lot of people, a lot of hard work to get this building up to the place that where it is to, uh, of where it is today. And about a year ago, um, I had this feeling that I wasn't good enough. It came uh, when James Harder, if you know James, uh, he's uh, one of the guys at church, he's a builder, he's very good at what he does, and he's very quick at getting, you know, building stuff done. And he sent me a text, uh, me and Ross actually, a text, and he said, hey Ben, can you come and help put this fence up? You know, we need to put concreting down, can you help? We'll put the panels in and, and you know, we can do that. Now, if you know me, um, you know that when it comes to building stuff, I'm just not very good at that, right? Now, I'm not, like, I'm not complaining about that. I just know my place. I just know that if you want something done well, you don't ask me. You ask someone else. And so I was confused by James's text, right? Getting this text, I thought, hang on, why is he texting me? And so I replied to him and I said, James, I think you've got the wrong Ben. Here at Southside, someone once said, if you're not sure who the guy is, just say Ben, and you probably have got one of them. And I know that at church, when it comes to the bends of the church, I am the worst of them at construction. And so I said, I think you've got the wrong bend, to which he replied very quickly, no, I've already asked those bends. You are what's left. Come and help me. And so here I was in the morning, woke up, you know, came early, did the concreting, and it was the fence outside. I mean, you can go and check it out. It was and still is an amazing job that we did. And I'd love to claim some of the glory for that, but all I did was wheelbarrow the concrete from one place to the next, and even then there was a time where I nearly stuffed that up. The whole time I had this feeling, and if, if you've ever worked with James, I'm sure you've had this feeling as well, that I wasn't good enough. Now, I know ultimately it doesn't matter that much in that moment. In fact, shortly after we finished the job, I went and got coffees and felt again that I was good enough. That's a job that I can do well. Uh, but came back and the feeling had gone. I know that in that moment, it doesn't actually matter that I didn't feel good enough, but I also am aware that there are other places in our lives where we have this sense that we're not good enough. And sometimes that can be crippling. Sometimes that can mess with us a little bit. Sometimes that can create in us some deep sense of self-worth and self-image issues. And one of those places where it is crippling is not just, you know, when we're building stuff with other people, but when it comes to us and God. Right? I don't know if you've ever wondered this, but when it comes to God, have you ever asked this question, am I good enough for God? You know, we've been looking in this series, Why Jesus? We've been looking at Jesus you know, we've seen some big stuff when it comes to Jesus. You know, week one, we saw God works miraculously through Jesus. He's a big deal. Week two, we saw that he is the only way to eternal life. Week three, last week, we saw that Jesus is God among us. Am I good enough for him? And, and not just am I good enough, but what if I'm not good enough for God? Like, what if I'm just average or below average? What if I'm not skillful enough? What if I don't have the ability? What if I'm... What if I'm too bad? Like, what if I've got a past that I'm afraid of or ashamed of? What if I'm not good enough for God? 
what we're going to do today is we're going to look at two passages in our Bible. We're kind of going to ask this question of God. We're going to look at two passages. The first is John 3, 16 to 21, and the second is John 8. And what we're going to see is this theological kind of principle in the first bit and then how it plays out in the second. And we're asking this question, what if I'm not good enough for God? And we pick it up in John 3, 16. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. What if I'm not good enough for God? What we see in this passage is that we aren't good enough for God, and that's okay. That's what we see here in these verses, because these verses are built on the fact that people aren't good enough, but God's love and his acceptance for us isn't grounded in who we are and what we do. It's grounded in who God is and what God has done. This whole passage gets at the fact that we aren't good enough, and that's okay. And it begins with those six opening words that I know you've probably heard a thousand times before. You know, like if you've ever heard John 3.16, you would have heard these words over and over again. If you haven't, maybe you're new to church and you've just seen John 3.16 under the NFL players' eyes when they're playing. I don't know, that's all I think of when I think of this passage. Maybe that's all you know of this, but these six words here are powerful and they get at the fact that God's love and his acceptance isn't grounded in us. The six words are, for God so loved the world. God loved the world, not because of the world, but because of who God is. Now, I wonder as you hear those words, and and maybe you've heard them before, how do you feel when you read, for God so loved the world? You know, I think generally how we feel to those words is, of course he does. Of course God loves the world. And, And that's because we live in a culture where we love everything. Right? Like, I don't know if you've noticed this, but we just love everything. We love our family. We love our friends. We love our animals. You know, we got a bird recently. We love our bird. Someone asked me how long till the bird gets in a sermon. Four weeks. That's how long. (laughs) We love everything. We love animals. We love our home. We love everything, right? In fact, we even love people we don't know. You know, I have a hairdresser that I can't even speak to because she doesn't speak English, but I love my hairdresser. We love everything. So when we read that God loves everything, we think, of course he loves everything. But there's a problem with that. And the problem is that's not how the original readers actually heard that. They didn't hear this like we hear this. No, for them, when they hear the word world, it's a loaded word. World is this loaded word. They don't just hear, you know, what do we hear? We hear globe. We hear earth. But for them, when they heard world, they heard darkness. They heard evil. They heard sin, and they heard this because for Jewish people, the world was something we don't want to go into. You know, for them, the world was, you know, um, if someone from the world touched you, you'd be unclean. You'd have to go and kind of be in the world. They would send their sick into the world. You know, if you had leprosy, you'd have to go into the world. The world was full of evil people. The world was full of the Samaritans. You know, the Jewish people felt to the Samaritans that they are the evil, you know, other nation who take God's word and twist it. The world is full of them. The world is full of people that worship other gods and sacrifice children to those gods. The world is full of the evil Roman Empire. This is what they understood the world to be. 
The world was evil. The world was darkness. And so if you gathered a bunch of Jewish people together and you said, okay, finish this sentence, God so loves what? They'd say, God so loves the children of Israel. That's how they'd finish that sentence. They'd never say world because God loves us, the children of Israel. God loves the Jewish people. We are the chosen race. We do the right stuff. You know, religiously, we do the right things. We are good enough for God. For God so loved the children of Israel. But John 3.16 doesn't say that. No, this says, God so loved the world. God loved the outsider. God loved the sick. God loved the sinner. God loved those that that aren't good enough for him. God loves the world. This this would be like, this would mess with you if you were a Jewish person. But it's life to us. Because what this shows us is that God's love, it's not contingent on us. It's based on who he is. You know, God's love isn't based on our skin color. It's based on God. God's love for us, it's not based on what we do. It's not based on who we are. It's not based on where we grew up. It's not based on our training. God's love is grounded in who he is. What if I'm not good enough? Well, these six words say God's love isn't based on whether you're good enough. It's grounded in who God is. But it's not just God's love, is it? It's also acceptance from God. Because we see in this passage that God's love resulted in action. Right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave himself. He gave Jesus, who entered into the world so that whoever believes would not perish but have eternal life. And then verse 17 is also very good. Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God's love for us isn't grounded in us. It's not grounded in who we are. And God's acceptance of us is not grounded in what we do. God's love and his acceptance is grounded in who he is and what he's done because Jesus came into the world and he did something. He went to the cross and he died on the cross and he died to take people's place. He died to take the punishment that people deserved. He died to take the place of sinners so that those who trust in him could have eternal life. He died in place of the world. He died so that whoever believes in him can be saved through him. So, so what if I'm not good enough? Well, God's love and his acceptance, it's not about who I am and it's not about what I do. It's about who God is and what God has done. Now, how good are these verses, right? How good is it that God's love and his acceptance isn't about me? It's grounded in who God is and what God has done. And when we think about this, I mean, this has profound implications for us especially when we start thinking about how good am I, and especially when we start considering this idea of sin. You know, so sin throughout the Bible, it's the the bad things we do and the good things we don't do, but it's also just this general rejection of God, that I just want to live my own way. And when we grasp what this passage is saying, this has some implications for us, because when we think about our sin, it affects us. You know, some of us feel guilt towards what we've done. Some of us feel shame towards what we've done. Some of us just have this sense that I'm not good enough. 
Now, this truth has implications for us. In fact, uh, I was reading this week about this uh, author. Uh, yeah, she is an author and writer and speaker called Brene Brown. Um, I haven't had much to do with her. I haven't read much of her stuff, actually. But apparently, according to Wikipedia, she spends her whole life looking into you know, stuff like guilt and shame and why we don't feel good enough. And she just had this amazing quote where she said this when speaking about guilt and shame. She said, guilt says this, guilt says, I've made a mistake. Guilt says, I've made a mistake. Whereas shame says, I am a mistake. Now, I just thought that's so helpful as we think about what guilt and shame is. You know, when we think about what we've done, guilt says, I've done the wrong thing. You know, some of us, we feel that, right? Some of us here this morning feel, I have done the wrong thing. I have made a mistake. We live with our guilt. You know, when we think about our past, for some of us, we have regrets that we're not okay with. We have this sense that I have made the mistake, I have done the wrong thing. But for some of us, don't feel guilt, some of us feel shame, and that might just be because of the culture we're from or how our parents kind of raised us. But for some of us, we don't just feel like I've made the mistake, for some of us, we feel deep, this deep-rooted sense that I am the mistake. You know, that I am not good enough. I am what's wrong. And, and I think when we think about this and God, when we think about our sin, I think this is so helpful. Guilt, some of us feel that. Shame, some of us feel that. But I, I think when we think about our reality and our faith, I think what Brene Brown says is so helpful, but I think there's a third option that we're missing. See, for some of us, when we think about sin, it is guilt. For some of us, it's shame. But for some of us, we need a third option. And the third option is this. It's apathy. It's indifference. See, where guilt says, I made a mistake, and shame says, I am a mistake, apathy says, I don't care about the mistake. And I think it's not just guilt and shame that we feel here this morning, but it's also we just feel apathetic to the fact that we've done what's wrong. See, I think if we think about it generally, we know what's right and wrong. Even if you're new to church, you know, even if you haven't been to church for a little while, most of us have a sense of what's right and wrong. And yet, not all of us feel guilt or shame. Some of us just don't care. Some of us feel apathetic towards it. And there's lots of reasons for that. I mean, some of the reasons are just simply because we want to do what we want to do. But another reason I think that we end up feeling apathetic towards our sin is because culturally in churches, we've decided that some sin is way worse than other sin. You know, like, I don't know if you've noticed this, but some sin... It's like we, cut, we outcast them. We send them into the world. You know, some sense, the message from Christianity is you're not welcome here. Don't come here. You know, if you're a part of that kind of level of sin and for other sin, we're okay with. You know, some people, they're not welcome here. Now, I'm not saying this is actually true. Right? You are welcome here, but that's the message for some people. They're not welcome here, but other sin, it's okay. In fact, it's what this guy calls respectable sins. There's a guy called Jerry Bridges who's an amazing author and scholar and he's written this book called Respectable Sins. And the whole premise of the book is that as a Christian society, we have decided that some sin is not as bad as other sin. And not only is it not as bad, but we're okay with it. It's respectable in the sense that it's okay. We look around and we're okay with the sin that lies in our heart. We've stopped fighting it. We've stopped actually pursuing to put that to death. And so uh, I, I have read this book, and it's um, honestly, I think it's the most challenging book I've ever read. 
But here's some of the respectable sins that he talks about. And I wonder, as I go through some of these things that he talks about, what do you feel? Do you feel guilt, shame, or apathy to some of these things? So one of the things he talks about is ungodliness. I don't know if you've ever thought about what is ungodliness. He defines ungodliness as that, that reality when we don't think about God. When we don't acknowledge God, when we don't live knowing what God is kind of willing for me or wanting for me in that moment, when we're not aware of what God is doing. Ungodliness is the moment that we have when we get to the end of the day and we think about our Bible reading or our prayer or our relationship with God and we go, oh, I haven't even thought about it. How do you feel when you hear ungodliness? For me, I'm challenged by that. He talks about frustration. This one also really hit me because frustration, he says, at the heart, frustration is our anger when something or someone gets in the way of our selfish plans. Frustration at its heart is where we don't trust God's sovereignty and his control even in the small things like when a car pulls in front of us. How's that feel? Frustration? A respectable sin, we're okay with frustration, right? We excuse it. He, he says selfishness. Selfishness, he says, it's always hard to um, figure out whether we're selfish or not because with selfishness, it's easy to see in other people but not in ourselves. He says, if you want to see whether or not you're selfish, ask someone you know to have a conversation with you and then at the end of the conversation, ask them, how much did you talk about yourself? Because selfish people speak about themselves. And we become okay with that. He looks at pride and anger, impatience, sins of the tongue, crude joking and gossip. Now, as we look at some of those things, I mean, how do you feel towards them? Do you feel guilt? Do you feel shame? Or do you feel apathy? Because for me, if I'm honest, I feel apathy. I don't care. In fact, if I think about my week, I excuse my frustration. I excuse my impatience. You know, this week, for some reason, I, I did the same work that I normally do on a sermon, and yet for some reason it took me 10 more hours than it normally does. I hate that. That frustrates me so bad. I get angry at myself for that. It annoys me that that happens, and I get frustrated, and then I excuse it. I'm okay with that. You know, I'm impatient. I want to get somewhere on time. And sometimes in our household, someone in our household dawdles just a little bit. <laughs> She's not that bad. She's not that bad. But, but I get impatient with that. Right? It's not her fault. It's my fault. That's my heart that's excusing that. And I excuse it. No, I need to get there on time. Because if I'm not there on time, people are going to start thinking badly about me. I excuse my sin. I feel apathy towards it. I don't care enough about it. You see, some of us, when we think about our sin, we feel guilt. We know we've done what's wrong. For some of us, we're here this morning and we have a real sense of that. For some of us, we feel shame. We know, we, we feel we are the mistake. We feel we are what's wrong and some of us have a sense of that. But for some of us today, we just don't care. But see, what the Bible does is it puts us all on the same level puts us all on the same page. And it says, whether you feel guilt or shame or apathy, 
You are not good enough for God. You're not. You might be good enough for your community. You might be good enough for the people around, but you are not good enough for God. And yet the Bible says that's okay. It's okay that you're not okay. It's okay that you don't have it all together. It's okay that we're not good enough because God's love and his acceptance for us isn't grounded in us. It's grounded in who he is and what he's done. And so to those who feel guilty, God says Jesus came into the world to wipe that slate clean. He paid for your sin. He paid for the punishment. He wiped it clean. For those of us who feel shame and don't feel good enough, the cross says, no, you are loved and you are accepted and your sin has been paid for in full. You are not a mistake. You are not what's wrong. You have been redeemed in Jesus. And for those of us who feel apathetic to our sin, the cross says, our sin nailed our Savior to the cross. It's our frustration. It's our impatience. It's our sin that put the nails in his hands and his feet. And yet even then, God still loves us and offers us acceptance in Jesus. It's so good what this says. It says it's, it's okay not to be okay. It's okay that we don't have it all together. It's okay that we're not good enough. Because God did something about it. But as we keep reading in these verses, it also shows us another truth. It shows us another truth and it says it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. It's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. And we see that from verse 19 to 21. Because he says this, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. People love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And then he says this in verse 20, Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. What this is saying is it's okay not to be okay. It's okay that we don't have it all together. It's okay that we're not good enough. But it's not okay to stay that way. Because Jesus in grace loves us, died for us. We have love and acceptance grounded in who he is and what he's done. But he calls us into the light. He calls us to live in the light. To leave the darkness. Leave the road that leads to death and pursue the road that leads to life. It's okay not to be okay but it's not okay to stay that way. Now, this is the principle in chapter 3, verse 16 to 21. The question is, though, how does this play out? How does this truth play out? Because uh, I don't know if you've kind of noticed this, but Christians typically aren't very good at communicating this truth, are we? Like, we're not very good at communicating both of these things, that it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. Generally, we get the, the message missed in the method and we post something on social media or a billboard or, you know, a placard or whatever, and the message gets completely lost. So what does this mean, or what does this look like, that it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way? Well, what I love is as we read through the book of John, we actually see these truths play out perfectly in Jesus. The message never gets lost in the method. And over and over again, we see Jesus graciously loving people and calling them to follow him. In fact, we see this in chapter 4. We see this with the Samaritan woman. You know, the woman of the world who had five husbands and the one that she was with wasn't her husband. Jesus lovingly engages with her, points her, shows her grace. And then her and the whole town, we believe, follow him. In chapter 5, remember we had the healing of the invalid by the pool. And Jesus, after he graciously, mercifully heals this guy, he says to this guy, sin no more. And then we get to chapter 8. 
And chapter 8, we see these truths play out perfectly. Now, I just want to say up front, we do need to address, if you've got a Bible in front of you, you might notice that it has uh, it in italics or a little footnote that says that this passage wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. Now, um, basically, what, what happened was the early church, or the church has for 2,000 years, been convinced that this account really did happen with Jesus. This is an eyewitness account. It has all of the things of an eyewitness account, but it's probably not meant to be right here in John. And so the early church just didn't really know where to kind of put this passage. And so some of it you'll see in your Bibles, it says sometimes it's in Luke, even sometimes it's in other bits of John. It's kind of like they weren't sure. They were sure it really happened, but they weren't sure where to put it. Now, if you want to know more about this, I'd love to chat with you after the service about it. But I think what I love about this is this is a real account of Jesus, really did happen. And what it does is it shows us these two truths play out perfectly. We see that it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. And we see that play out in the most beautiful circumstances. So if you've got your Bibles, flick to chapter 753 to 811, and we see this play out uh, beginning in verse 2. Jesus kind of goes away in 53, comes back, verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So you got this picture. Jesus is sitting at the temple teaching. He often did this. You know, I feel like the last three chapters have been Jesus teaching. And the religious leaders come and they try and accuse him because they want to kill him. You know, this again is the pattern of what we've seen. We've seen this over and over again already in the book of John. They want to kill Jesus. Now, it's worth noting the religious leaders, they think they're good enough. You know, they are the right race. They've got the right teaching, the right training. They think they're good enough and they hate Jesus. And so they try and trap Jesus. And here their trap is. They bring this woman to Jesus in front of these crowds at this temple. And they bring this woman in front of her and she's being caught in the act of adultery. Now just feel the weight of that. This is not that they heard this woman got around a bit. She's been caught in the act of adultery. It's almost like she's here in a sheet covering herself and they're pushing her in front of Jesus. You know, these arrogant religious leaders kind of pushing her in front of Jesus. You have to feel for this woman, don't you? I mean, yes, she did what was wrong. But here in this moment, her guilt is on display for everyone to see. Publicly, she is being crucified here. You know, they're saying, you did what was wrong. She's been publicly shamed in this moment. They are saying, you are what is wrong. Humiliation, dishonor. This is as bad as it gets here in this moment. And these religious leaders push her in front of Jesus and say, what are we going to do? Because the law says we should kill her. Now, the law is Deuteronomy 22. And the law actually says that if a woman is engaged to another man and she sleeps with someone else, then both the woman and the man are to be be killed. These religious leaders aren't interested in actually following the law. I mean, you've got to ask, where's the man? He's not even there. They're not really interested. They want to trap Jesus. 
And so in the middle of this, you've got shame and guilt and dishonor and humiliation. How is Jesus going to respond? How is he going to react to this moment where this woman is being publicly humiliated? Well, we see he looks down and he starts writing in the ground with his finger. No, we don't know what he writes. It's not about what he writes. And they keep on questioning him. And then in verse 7, we see this. He says, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. In the middle of shame and guilt and dishonor and humiliation, Jesus looks up to these religious leaders, those who think that they are good enough, and he says, If you're without sin, you throw the first stone. He's saying, Anyone here, right, never been frustrated? Never had those moments where you've been pushed and you got angry over the smallest things? Anyone here never been impatient? Anyone here never done the wrong thing? Anyone here never said the wrong thing? Anyone here never thought the wrong thing? Anyone here, right, are they completely perfect that when they had the good option, they always did it? Is anyone perfect? He says, if you are, you can pick up the stone and throw it at her. And what do we see? One by one, these religious leaders leave. Jesus says, before we throw the stone, check your heart. You know, it's always easier to see someone else's sin without checking our own hearts. Jesus says, if you're sinless, you throw the first stone, and they all leave, one by one. Now, you can see the irony going on here. They came to trap Jesus, and they're leaving trapped. They're actually leaving, acknowledging that they are sinful and that they're not good enough. And Jesus, in this moment of guilt and shame and dishonor and humiliation, he shows grace. Because as everyone leaves, he looks up. And all we have left there is the sinless one, Jesus, with the sinner, this adulterous woman. That's all that's left. And how's Jesus going to respond? What's he going to say in this moment? Well, verse 9, he realizes everyone's going away. And then in verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go, leave your life of sin. Jesus shows grace. In a place where guilt should have existed, Jesus showed grace. In a place where shame should have been, Jesus gives her honor. In this moment where there should have been death, Jesus brings life. And he says, neither will I condemn you. For the Son of Man came not to condemn, but to save. But he says, go leave your life of sin. See how it's perfectly displayed that it's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to be good enough, but it's not okay to stay that way. It's what he shows her. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to have it all together. It's okay not to be good enough. Our God knows that. And the love of our God and acceptance from God, it's not grounded in us. It's okay not to be okay. He shows her grace and compassion and mercy. But in grace, he calls her to leave her life of sin. Now notice it's not guilt-driven, is it? 
I mean, guilt doesn't last. Guilt, you know, you can guilt your kids or you can guilt your friends or your family. You can guilt people into doing stuff and it creates short-term, you know, they, they do the right thing for a short, t- short time. But guilt doesn't last. Eventually, guilt gives way to apathy when we don't care anymore. Jesus shows her grace. And grace transforms and grace changes and in grace, he calls her to leave her life of sin. Grace miraculously moves in us. It changes us so that we can live the life that God has called us to live. It's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. Now, we don't know what happens for this woman. I mean, this is the end of the account. We don't see what happens, but we do know that she came face to face with grace. It's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. Now, the question is not just how does this play out for people in the Bible, but what does this mean for us? As we read this, as we see this truth from John 3, 16 to 21 and how it plays out in chapter 8, what does this mean for us? Well, like throughout the whole series in this series that we're doing, Why Jesus? Hopefully every week we're giving you an invitation because John is an invitation. It's not just an invitation to know more stuff. It's an invitation to come and trust in Jesus and follow him. And this invitation to trust Jesus, it begins with the truth that it's okay not to be okay. You know, if you're here for the first time at church this morning, or maybe you haven't been for a little while, the reality is here at Southside, we might have a nice building, but we are all deeply broken people. The people around you are not okay. We all have stuff within us that's not okay. Some of us are sitting here and we have pasts that we are guilty of. We live with the guilt of our past. Some of us here, we have regrets that we have been holding on to. Some of us feel shame. Some of us actually, it's hard for us to even be here because we don't feel good enough. We feel like we are the mistake. But the invitation from Jesus, it begins with the reality that it's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to be good enough. It's okay not to have it all together because God's love and his acceptance, it's not, it's not about us. It's not grounded in who I am or what I do. It's grounded in who God is and what God has done at the cross. It's okay not to be okay. This invitation is an invitation to come to Jesus, the King who loves you, who's for you, who cares about you, who died for you on the cross. The Son came not to condemn but to save the world through him. This invitation begins with this reality. It's okay not to be good enough, but it moves The invitation of Jesus moves by grace into the reality that it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. Jesus calls those who follow him to leave their life of sin. Like he said to the invalid by the pool, sin no more. Like he said to the adulterous woman, leave your life of sin. Jesus calls those who follow him too to leave the path that leads to death and follow him in the way that leads to life. He calls us to leave our life of sin. And for some of us, we need to feel that challenge because for some of us, our sin is obvious. For some of us, it's like the adulterous woman. For some of us, we are here today and we are carrying the weight, the guilt, the shame, or the apathy of of sexual sin. Some of us, we're in relationships we shouldn't be in. Some of us, we look at stuff we shouldn't be looking at. Some of us find time so that we can hide the fact that we look at porn. Some of our sin is obvious. 
For some, it's laziness. Our laziness is obvious. We've just given up in following Jesus. We're going through the motions. For some of us, it's our greed that's obvious. You know, we get this invitation to give to God, and yet we haven't given for a while. For some, our sin is obvious. Listen, Jesus, Jesus says it's okay not to be okay. He gives grace in those moments. But he does call you to leave your life of sin. He calls us to leave our life of sin. For some of us, though our sin's not so much obvious, our sin is respectable. For some, it's frustration. For some, it's impatience. For some, it's pride. For some, it's anger. For some, it's what we say. There's grace for us. And if that is us, and listen, it's me, right? It's me. I get frustrated. I get impatient. I get angry. It's me. Jesus gives us grace. He says it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. His grace must transform us. And when we see our sin and when God sees our sin, what he says to us is that the Son came not to condemn, but to save the world through him. But Jesus does say, leave your life of sin. Now, as we get to the end of this, as we see this play out, as we think about it, I know that for some of us this morning, we're feeling the weight of this. And I don't just want to leave us in this, but actually give two steps that I think we can take. Just two quick steps. The first one is we're about to sing a song. And in this next song, if you feel the weight of your sin, then let me encourage you, run to Jesus. Confess that to him. Whatever it is, confess it to Jesus. He's faithful to forgive us. He's gracious. Run to him in this next song. Take a moment to confess this to God. But then the second step is I want to encourage you to speak to someone about this. Find someone that you can trust and be honest about your sin. Because when we open about it, when we come into the light, when we call our sin, our God is faithful and he helps us through that. So let's pray and then let's take that first step together. God, we are so grateful that your love and acceptance isn't grounded in us. God, it's not based on who I am, and it's not based on what I do. God, your love is grounded in who you are and what you've done for us at the cross. God, we are so thankful for what you've done for us at the cross. We are so thankful that the cross gives us this message that it is okay not to have it all together. It's okay not to be okay. The cross speaks into those of us who feel guilty and the cross says it's wiped clean. For those of us who feel shamed and feel like we are the mistake, the cross says you are loved and you are cared for. And the cross says to those of us who feel apathetic to our sin, your sin nailed Jesus to the cross. But the cross says we're loved and we're accepted. God, as we think about what this means for us, as we hear the reality of your word, of what Jesus said over and over again, it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. Jesus, you call us as you called these people in the Bible to leave our life of sin, to leave the path that leads to death and to follow Jesus that leads to life. Help us, Lord. Transform us, Lord. By your grace, we pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.